Our very existence depends on this. This black strength. Strength that has carried us for decades, but is undermining an important aspect of our humanity and feeding in on itself. Being strong all the time took away our ability to speak about our weaknesses, our sadness, our mental illnesses. This silence is killing us. Welcome to another edition of the Black Doctor Speak podcast. I'm Jason James, executive producer. Black Doctor Speak is your source for vetted, accurate information on African-American health from some of the nation's top doctors who just happen to be black. Black Doctor Speak is sponsored by the African-American Wellness Project. And our show today features an interview with Dr. Ron Bailey, a psychiatrist and author of the book At Gunpoint, which examines gun violence from the seat of a medical professional. I'm joined, as always, by our host, Dr. Michael Lenore. Dr. Lenore, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. How are you doing, Jason? I'm doing very well, thank you. I wanted to jump in right away on vaccines. I hear there's some updates. Can you provide those? Well, you know, to be optimistic, we're moving along on vaccine development. On the uh, first phase three trial where they're giving to individuals uh, start today. Uh, and I think there are substantial numbers, 30,000 people are supposed to be enrolled in that trial. Uh, there's definitely some problems, though, because um, even if we get a vaccine, in order for it to be effective, 350 million people have to be vaccinated in this country and 7.6 million worldwide. Uh, and the effect of new vaccines are somewhat unpredictable, and, and there are some indications that people might not take them. And I think the African-American community is especially suspicious of vaccines. So even though we get a vaccine, it looks like we're moving, but once we get it, we're going to start with some difficult problems. The other thing is who's going to get this vaccine first? I mean, if you look at, um, at the order of things that I've seen, it's military, students, and then it's underrepresented minorities, but I don't count on that unless we insist on it, and then essential workers and hotspots. So there's, once we get a vaccine, if we get one, we'll all be happy, but there's still some problems left. Right, and it'll be interesting to see how they kind of decide the pecking order for a vaccine, uh, especially coming out of this administration. And then speaking of the administration, uh, the president has seemingly changed his tune a bit on the, the coronavirus pandemic, starting up his task force briefings again, advocating for people wearing masks, um, and also conceding that the virus is going to get worse before it gets better. What's your take on that? I think once he's saying to the American public, I thought, I think I saw this morning, that only 32% of the American public believes he's done a good job. And you cannot be elected with that percentage. I think no matter how he tries to distract us for other things, that this election will be decided on how well we're doing in this pandemic and how he's tied to that. But I think his interest in the vaccine and interest in wearing a mask and uh, talking to uh, people about so staying in place or social distancing really represents his poor political position uh, in the race right now. You believe basically it's a ploy for re-election? It's like a bait and switch. I mean, it's like he tried to do something this week on lowering drug prices. He's lowering drug prices at the same time he's trying to take away people's insurance. I think, I think we as African Americans know this is a bait and switch. It's a classic Trump technique. Uh, no, I don't think he's that interested in anything more than he's been interested in, but he's in political trouble, and he'll do anything, almost anything, to distract us away. Absolutely. One thing I want to go to, and this is a, a heavy subject for not only our people but other brown people in this country as well, 
is the continued violence in the country. We have military police forces in Portland dragging protesters and leaders into unmarked vans. We have people driving through protesters in Colorado. As we look to our conversation with Ron Bailey, what is your reaction to what is going on in terms of this escalation of violence, particularly against African Americans and those who are allies of us? I mean, I certainly think that because of the pandemic in this country, it makes people far more tense. And you're starting to see an uptick uh, in crime and people take advantage of that. But I think the biggest scam in this country is having to send in federal people where federal people are not particularly affected. I think what he would like to see in this country is a whole series of towns explode so that he could take over as the law and order president. I think it's a tactic. I think it's embarrassing. There's no doubt about it, the fact that there's been an increase on black-on-black crime in a lot of our major cities, which leads us into the interview with our special guest, Dr. Ron Bailey. Dr. Bailey is one of this country's most distinguished psychiatrists. He's a former professor of psychiatry and chairman of the departments at Meharry Medical College and at Wake Forest University. He now runs a large psychiatric clinic in Los Angeles. He's the author of the book At Gunpoint. So now let's talk with Dr. Bailey about what he thinks is happening. Dr. Bailey, welcome to the program. We're glad to have you. Oh, thanks for having me, Dr. Lenore. Tell me, where do you think our nation is uh, mentally at this point? Well, I think we're in a, in a pretty uh, adverse circumstance. There seems to be rampant fear uh, of too many persons, and very often we live in a society where when persons have fear of others, often they respond very negatively uh, with, with violence or aggression toward others. We see um, uh, many Caucasian persons and members of groups of society who seem uh, very quick to be very hostile toward African Americans or other minority groups, be they uh, Asians or Hispanics uh, and the like. Uh, very often much of that is uh, fostered by a lot of the political rhetoric, whether we use terms like Kung Fu against the Asians, or we say that Mexicans are you know, rapists and murderers, or that we uh, don't want to talk, call all of the black women journalists um, you know, um, rude or, or mean-spirited. Uh, that rhetoric matters. Uh, throughout all levels, particularly when you get, I think, at the highest level of government. You know, what I observe, uh, Dr. Bailey, is that African Americans, we've been in situations like this as a people many, many times, but many of our white counterparts have not. This is the first time that something has invaded their comfortable space, and I think many of them don't know how to handle it. That's a very good point. I clearly think that um, the COVID-19, I call the triple pandemic, of the COVID-19 virus, the medical crisis superimposed on top of uh, the issue of uh, the political unrest because persons were very uh, unhappy and upset about the deaths of these individuals, especially African-American individuals, leading up to and including uh, the big issue in Minnesota with the death of uh, George Floyd. And then really just the consideration of the, of a long-term process of uh, police brutality against ethnic minority groups, I think we, we clearly, I think, have seen the anxiety heightened to a feverish pitch. And I also would agree uh, in my practice, uh, what, what work I'm involved in, we clearly do see certain groups, particularly uh, Caucasian individuals and in, in, in groups, uh, more disproportionately affected, more uh, off their uh, element of balance and kind of back on their heels, and very often that leads to fear, which makes some people strike out more aggressively toward others. I think that's what we're seeing. And what about the uh, additional burden that African Americans carry? 
Uh, we know that this virus disproportionately impacts them. That has got to be very difficult for African Americans. Oh, absolutely. I think that uh, many would argue that the coronavirus itself, and then again, what I call the double, even triple pandemic of these multiple overriding stressors on, on African Americans, you've seen the, the concept of the band-aid being pulled off the scab, but the sore is still there. Uh, many African American persons have had this long history of poor uh, overall health care, a lot of chronic milk illness, hypertension, diabetes, asthma, cancer. Those problems are worsened by the so-called social determinants of health, living in uh, poor circumstances, have less access to health care, uh, not having enough funding, I think, for, for primary care, having more poverty, and living, I think, very often in very congregated living arrangements. Uh, that's a recipe for disaster in general. Then on top of that, you add COVID-19. It's been too much for most people to take. The One of the problems I have seen in my experience in practicing in African-American communities is there's a certain stigma about seeking help. Obviously, this creates anxiety, depression, you can't work, all of these other things. Um, my father probably reflected so many uh, in our community when I, I was talking to him one time about mental health. He said, you know, the black people don't go for mental health. They just drink and go to church. And I think to a certain extent there is a certain stigma around seeking help for mental health. That They go all the way from being a little anxious to th the people thinking that they're crazy if they seek help. Exactly right. And, and I'm an African-American psychiatrist. I finished med school years in Texas in 1990, so about exactly 30 years. I've seen this um, most days of my career over these last three decades uh, of this career. Um, many believe that in, in a variety of um, demographic groups, uh, but I think you do see that consideration of the stigma against mental illness blocking and, and creating resistance to persons going to seek care when it's indicated. My experience has always been, though, if you talk to persons long enough, and people who talk to me outside the typical formal psychiatric setting, they may not want to come to my office, but they want to meet and talk at a Starbucks or at a, at a, at a park or in, a, in an informal setting, probably because of stigma. And then I'll find out that many have many of the same strategies that other persons who are using the formal processes to engage them. Maybe they talk to a friend or a relative. Maybe they try to write things down and send it to somebody to address an age-old conflict or, or emotional barrier. Maybe they decide that they're going to be more involved in something that's relaxing to them, their church or their religion or gardening. I do believe that all persons find something that works for them. We just think that the use of organized official psychiatry will be more helpful because if you do so, you're going to see a doctor that's been trained and educated over years, in cases, decades, to do with your problem specifically, rather than the hit or miss likelihood if you go to somebody who's just a personal friend. Here is a situation where, obviously, the number of psychiatrists of color is certainly limited. Uh, maybe even opportunities are limited. Uh, if someone, you know, we're all kind of in our own family situation. What could we do uh, if we can't reach uh, experience help right away. What are some of the things to reduce what I think are probably, and I could be wrong, the two biggest problems of depression and anxiety over all the things that are going on? Well, first of all, you're right that the two biggest problems of depression and anxiety, probably 25% um, of the time, one in 20 adult Americans will meet cardiac major depression at least once in their adult life between ages of 18 and 65, and anxiety probably occurs more like a fourth or a third of the time in people's lives. So uh, we tend to see that a lot. About 70% um, of the time, 7 out of 10, a person may have both at the same time, a depressive disorder and an anxiety disorder. The anxiety disorders are a lot more likely to lead people to drink alcohol, 
or things of that nature, the depressive disorder is much more likely to have somebody pull away from the normal circumstance. They become isolated. They may not work effectively. They may lose their job or their relationship or their ability to parent or engage. And I think that those are the patterns we actually generally tend to see. I also think, though, that uh, there are other strategies people very often are engaged in. Uh, if you can't get for formal care, trying to find informal care from as professional a person as possible. Uh, many times we want to speak to somebody who already knows us, a brother or sister. At times they may be a little too close to give one objective advice. Maybe better to speak to, you know, your pastor at church or maybe a, um, a past teacher or a, uh, an educator, professional, someone who may not be exactly your best friend but who knows you and will give you advice that very often may be sometimes tough to take. Often the comments we give to somebody in psychiatry, uh, whether we call it advice or not, is not always what the person wants to engage in, but maybe what's best for them to make changes that are causing problems in their life. Same as the COVID-19 crisis, it's causing people to make changes that are putting them, I think, in the untoward or negative position. Trying to figure out how to get out of that, I think, is key. That's what psychiatrists should be able to help them with. One of the things, one of the outcomes of this whole coronavirus epidemic uh, appears to be an increase in violence, particularly gun violence. Now, you wrote the book. What motivated you to write this book, and what do you think is happening here today? Well, I was motivated to write about the book. Uh, I'm a forensic psychiatrist by training, so I've been around forensic uh, issues, which uh, by definition are medical legal. They include but are exclusive to issues regarding violence. Uh, I've been doing this for 30 years. Uh, there's been many of us who are in healthcare. Often what you tend to see when you dig very deep into uh, American health care and the problems, I think, that care um, uh, presents itself, you'll see violence as an underpinning. And all too often the gun, the gun violence, is the most significant tool or strategy people use to enact violence towards others. I'm always struck by the data that shows that even if you, if you have a gun, if you don't use it, if you don't shoot somebody with it, or if you don't even brandish it and pull it out and, and wave it around, you're still more likely to be engaged in aggressive acts or non-gun-related violent acts because the gun is in your possession or, or near you. So a person is much more likely to hit you rather than just verbally fuss with you if they have a gun in their car and you're inside a building. So having access to a gun psychologically changes how we interface with people. I think it ratchets up the level of hostility when conflict occurs, and it really makes it a lot more difficult for many people to find those strategies that are generally used to, to decrease the anxiety, kind of throw water on the, on, on the fire, so to speak, and limit the likelihood of an escalating situation. Uh, so because of those concerns and my, and my work in, the, in this field, I have to write a book on gun violence because very often persons were writing about it and talking about it. Psychiatrists were not the ones doing the talking, especially black psychiatrists. So do you think that this whole issue of gun violence now is because you know there is opportunities that that people with guns don't feel that they're they're going to be as, as scrutinized as as often by police or that they're not going to be reported. Um, you think that has anything to do with the current increase that we're seeing in our major cities? Well, clearly, it's a current increase in the use of guns to enact violence toward others. Much more of the violence is so-called dynamic uh, and interpersonal. Uh, the people who we have conflict with or are angry toward. It may not always be domestic, somebody who we live with. Maybe someone, uh, you, you're at a, a mall and you have a conflict with a cashier. Uh, we see people now who actually go to a store and they're told to put a mask on. They leave back to the car to get the gun to come back and shoot somebody in the store. They're so angry at having given an order about wearing a mask. Our folks have always been told you can't smoke a cigarette in this place. So it makes no sense in many regards that there'll be that much anger about not about having to wear a mask. I do think that uh, persons very often think uh, that if you have a gun, you have more power. 
So I think what we're really seeing is that there's a feeling of powerlessness in some groups, many Caucasians, maybe some others as well, and the more powerless they feel about the COVID-19 problem, about uh, stay at home, you may not be able to work your job because people are not coming in because the government is telling people to stay at home and limit uh, the risk, I think, uh, to bend the curve, so to speak. Uh, so accessing very quickly a gun puts them back into that mode of being powerful in their own eyes. I think we're seeing that regularly. That's almost every evening, something on television, uh, some seemingly inconsequential conflict that led to a violent act with a gun. Uh, most people, when you start to think about gun violence in cities, they're always thinking about gang activity. It's not always, it's not always gang activity that leads people to use a gun, is it? Not at all. I think that the term gang and gang-related uh, has been overused in our society for a long time. Uh, for us as a psychiatry, gang simply means there may be, maybe a group with some similar interests. Uh, you could have a gang of young males who, you know, uh, don't wear the clothes correctly and, and are engaged in a, an adverse or bad behavior. But you could also have a gang of people who uh, work for the government, whether they are police or authority laden or in other settings, but they, they function together. So in a gang, they're more likely to do something that's aberrant or adverse or even hostile towards somebody else that they wouldn't do individually. That's why very often when there's a lynching historically, you rather saw one man fight one man and then lynching. It was very often a group of men, i.e. a gang. And those persons may actually work for the government. They may be professionals in other settings. But uh, when that gang behavior and that group activity, we have what we call groupthink uh, in a group, one is more likely to not take responsibility for their actions, but to do a bad thing towards somebody else, and you blame it on what the whole group wanted to do. Uh, I think that very often we're seeing a lot more of that, unfortunately, and people tend to lean in that direction where they don't want to take responsibility individually for the, their own behavior, and their behavior very often is driven by their own individual fear of what might happen to them. Uh, we really have to get our hands around this because I think it's really a, a worsening and a spiraling problem in America. There's also a, a controversy, a division in the African-American community about the whole concept of defund the police. Um, and most people who want to defund the police is probably many of them have legitimate grievances. And each one of us as a black man has had that partic a particular problem. Those of us who grew up around um, in urban inner city, deep urban inner city areas, you know, we we don't we're not sure we want the police completely out of there. So I, I clearly think that uh, as all too often what happens in, in our increasingly polarized political system uh, of society in America, uh, terms are misused and and kind of pointed in a direction to serve a political purpose, and really it, it makes it more difficult for people in uh, in, in organized medicine or healthcare. Uh, who have a sociological bent to try to solve um, uh, societal-type problems. I've always thought that the idea of defund the police meant that we are overfunding, the, the, uh, we are excessively funding the over-militarization of police. Uh, and, and we really have. Once we started 30 years ago with this idea of, you know, fighting the, the war on crime or the war on drugs, we, uh, we began to use military tactics. Military tactics are, are aggressive. Uh, they're, they're, they're meant to, to go out and, 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 and offensively harm you. I've got a son in the military, and they, they teach them uh, how you go out and you blow up bridges, you, 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 you hurt people, and you break things when you're at war. Police or law enforcement were never intended to work that way. By definition, they should be a peacekeeping force. Uh, you won't have a presence. That's how when you walk down the street, the uh, police are standing on the corner just standing there in big cities hoping that no one will do a bad thing. The goal is, is, is prevention and to uh, discourage uh, aberrant action in the first place. So defund the police always directly meant that they shouldn't be militarized and aggressive. They should always be there and be able to protect you if needed. 
Uh, I've also agreed as a psychiatrist that another component of defund the police was always supposed to mean, as I understood it, that more money would go to mental health because all too often police are called to engage in activities that they're not really trained to do fully. They're called to somebody's house because there's a, a crying baby. They're called to someone's place because a elderly person needs a ride to the nursing home. They really have nobody to care for them. Uh, they're called for all kinds of you know concerns that are not really about violence and aggression, but they're, they're humanistic. And, and social work with the persons of that bent, case managers will be better apt and better trained to manage those concerns. You know, I got a couple of questions for you. Uh, like I say before, we've all been stopped by the police, uh, in, you know, in what we consider uh, tense and um, unnecessary circumstances. Uh, I know that you've had those experiences yourself. As a psychiatrist, you always talk to people who've had those experiences. But what did you feel as you drove away from an encounter like that? Well, I felt bad. Uh, it's happened to me. I mentioned to a group not too long ago that I've, I'm 55 years old and I've been stopped by the police um, nine times in my life, five times in the first uh, 30 years of me uh, driving a vehicle, probably from age um, 15 to 50, 35 years, and probably four times in a four-year period living in um, central North Carolina at my last job. Uh, so I did begin to think that uh, there was something wrongful about the increased number of stoppages. I mentioned I never got a ticket in any four of those times I was stopped in the last four years. So when one, one does wonder if the era that we're in is changing and it's easy to decide to just stop someone, and the easy demographic to see with me is that I'm African-American. I'm a pretty large guy, so that's generally pretty easy to see in a car without tinted windows. I'd also say, though, that the na nature of engagement between myself and a policeman has really been very striking. In fact, I've even written about it. I'm often struck by the kinds of questions law enforcement will ask me when they stop me, questions that seem to have nothing at all to do with the nature of my ability to drive a vehicle or drive it safely or, or the like. They ask questions, you know, where are you going and, and, and what time did you get up this morning and, and where are you coming from and what do you do for a living, all kind of things that seem inconsequential to the ask of why a law enforcement person would stop you driving and not even give you a ticket. Those are, I think, uh, concerns that have uh, that cause you to lose, lose respect for or confidence mm -hmm. in uh, law enforcement if, if the action doesn't seem to be um, uh, to, to be valid. But how did you feel? I mean, as a as man, as a you know, how did you feel? I mean, what were your what were you? Uh, again, I, I think I feel powerless. I, 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 as an individual, as a man, I think you, you feel powerless because clearly, you know, all of us are trained, whether we all follow rules or not to feel somewhat of a degree of respect and deference for law enforcement or for the government authorities. If a policeman stops me, I'm, I'm going to, you know, engage in a certain way and, and behave in a certain way with much more deference uh, and, and professional solitude than I would in a normal engaged vice kind of walk into the mall or to a restaurant and bump into somebody that I, you know, didn't know and how, how we speak. So when a policeman actually takes umbrage and speaks sometimes uh, too loud or with bad tone, or in different tone, or at times even in a hostile way towards some persons, of course that makes you feel bad because you know that you know you didn't do anything to deserve that. And if you think based on the other media information you're receiving, that that's something that that police is doing toward you arbitrarily and perhaps not toward others, maybe not toward somebody who's the same age and size as me, but who's of a different ethnicity or race, or somebody who's a different gender. If I'm talking to a policeman, I think he would engage, he or she would engage with me very differently if I was a small 50-year-old Caucasian woman versus myself, you know, a middle-aged African-American man who's, who's pretty large physically, of course I feel like I'm being singled out 
and 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 disenfranchised in my ability as an American citizen to be be treated fairly by that law enforcement officer. So those are things that I think undermine the credibility of law enforcement all over the country. Why it's so important that um that I think law enforcement not have the so called code of blue where we think at times what we hear that some may protect other law enforcement officers if they've engaged in aberrant or adverse behavior toward people, uh they should be honest and fair. And, and, and weed the bad apples out so that the police departments in general can be viewed with respect and, and um, can view respect. Yeah, but feeling powerless, you know, that's the feeling I had, and I, and I share that with you. It's one of the worst feelings you could have. There's nothing where there's nothing that you can really do. When we talk about the violence that's happening now, is there any solution to the problem, or is it just like the, or is it just like the coronavirus? We have to let it run its course. No, there are definitely solutions, and, and I speak very regularly about this, uh, and, I, and I think there are four things that I like to share. First and foremost, I think that all members of society must acknowledge that racism and, and, and police brutality and, and, uh, and ideologies that I think are adverse to, I think, fairness and humanity and equity uh, must go, and they must be addressed by, I think, all, all members. So many of us are very pleased that uh, in the marches you see now during the civil unrest, all over the country for the last month or two, you've seen persons who are black and brown and Caucasian and yellow and, and all kind of backgrounds and, and, and religions and, and ages and, and genders, which is probably much different and much better than the persons only of a certain race or even a certain uh, gender were the ones who are marching and asking for uh, producing civil unrest but asking for peace and, and equitable treatment. Second, I think that money has to change hands. Some entities uh, must decide to fund the process of change. Um, I'm a member of a graduate of an HBCU, went to Morehouse College, graduated in 1986. So I was very happy when Netflix gave $40 million to Morehouse College and $40 million to Spelman College. I think another $40 million to the UNCF, uh, arguing that by funding and supporting these uh, African-American colleges, it would help increase the likelihood that more young African-Americans could actually do well and, and go on to some of the benefits of American society. Those are things that we should have always happened and would decrease this divide between persons based on race and ethnicity. The third thing I think that has to happen is clearly I think we have to uh, hear it from the top. Words matter and, and rhetoric hurts. And when your governors or your president or your top elected officials or leaders are silent when wrongful actions happen to persons of certain backgrounds, but very loud and, and very quick to respond when bad things happen to persons of different backgrounds, people can see that. Uh, that they're not uh, unaware of the uh, commonplace of that happening. Uh, and that, that's as harmful as uh, if a person was very engaged in action themselves, let alone being indifferent. And the final point I simply said, I think kind of going forward, we've got to integrate you know, anti-racist actions, uh, language and ideology, uh, work that people engage in, uh, changes, I think, in business and in education and in healthcare and in law enforcement and the legal system, uh, and there's a lot to be done. Uh, we read a piece recently here about, you know, prosecutorial discretion. We've got to find ways to change that and, and, and have prosecutors be part of the process of only going to the persons who have done bad behavior, not people based on their ethnicity or background. So there are four key themes that I think could be helpful to work to effectively change, uh, and we consider this all of these along the line of an anti-racist agenda. Do you own a gun? I do not. Yeah, well, you know, I, I told my wife there were three things I was going to come out of this pandemic. One is a dog, another is a gun, and the third is a ventilator. And she said, you know, I don't want to be arguing with these people about whether I get a ventilator or not. So I have my own. Yeah, 
you know, you line in the emergency room and say, well, there's Lenore here. And I said, no, no, I'll, let me go out to the car. I have my own stuff. <laughs> but, but, and, my wife, and my wife said that um, that she wasn't, she for two reasons I couldn't own a gun. One is that she might shoot me or I probably would shoot myself <laughs> or somebody else. But one final thing uh, before we conclude uh, this most interesting interview. Um, the impact of racism on uh, on uh, African Americans in general. Uh, I don't think that our, uh, that other ethnic groups uh, understand the power that racism has uh, in affecting both the uh, the mental health and the and outcomes for African Americans. That's a tremendous point. I clearly think that the impact of racism on African Americans has been extreme and and has been at that level, I think, of intensity uh, for not just one century, but centuries. Even when we've had changes, when we uh, ended slavery ostensibly in 1865 and when women got the right to vote in 1920 and with civil rights legislation and medical legislation in 1964, 1965, and the like, uh, often, those things were often done with some caveat. There was still some ability to maintain some un- unfair advantage against African Americans. There's a movie out right now called 13th Amendment that discusses the fact that most Americans don't realize that when slavery ended, uh, there was one line that allowed for persons to be treated like slaves, quote unquote, in the vernacular if you were a prisoner. So they have all kinds of laws that, that made it very easy to arrest African Americans. You could be arrested for loitering or for not having a job for very seemingly inconsequential items and then given a high bail and then. And you remember that old charge, reckless eyeballing? Right, just eyeballing, right? So just for any kind of reason, and you're right. back to being a criminal, and then if you criminalize, you can be treated like a slave, just maybe to work for, for next to nothing and not given decent places to, to live and, and, and limited uh, health care and, 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 and losing a lot of your liberties. You can't vote and you can't get visitation, all kind of things. You can't, you know, uh, raise a family and, and be a good father to your, your children if you're black male. So all the things have been instant, um, uh, incorporated, I think, in our uh, and what's really been a racist ideology, ideological agenda in America, really for for a couple hundred years. And although there's been big efforts to make change, like there's one going on right now, uh, none of them have been so effective that the problem has actually gone away. So this has been a recalcitrant problem, I think, for Americans uh, of all backgrounds for a long time. Because I think that racism hurts whites in America every bit as much as it hurts blacks. They may not feel the physical difficulty early on, but I think that the thoughts that one appreciates that they know they're getting an unfair advantage. Uh, because of racism, and that then they may at some point try to find ways to find balance, uh, has to be very difficult. So I think a lot has to be said, but the, uh, the extreme adversity that's come to African Americans because of racist ideology and racist agenda here in the U.S. has been uh, off the chart. It's how negative it's impacted our society. Well, Dr. Bailey, thank you once again for giving us insight into so many things. I think those of you who really want to understand the metamorphosis of this country into a gun violence society should pick this book up. So thank you very much, Ron, and um, have a good day. Keep safe. Thank you. Well, thank you, Dr. Bailey. That uh, certainly gives us some insight into what's going on and perhaps some ways in which these problems with gun violence can be solved. What do you think, Jason? I completely agree. I mean, everything that Dr. Bailey said was pretty spot on. He touched on a lot of the important topics in terms of, you know, the mental effects that racism really has on people of color and people who aren't of color, interestingly enough. Um, the whole notion of 
wanting to feel powerful, I think, is something that we have seen throughout history as a motivator for many uh, different groups and a justification for their causes. We had some questions, as always, coming from social media this week uh, revolving around mental health, and so I'll go to a couple of those. This first one in from Facebook. When is the right time to begin teaching your children about mental health? You know, I think the earlier you teach a child about all aspects of health, the more likely they are to be able to utilize those aspects when they get older. I think in my household, mental health was almost never talked about. Even though my dad was a YMCA exec, my mother a social worker. Uh, We just considered people either crazy or not crazy. I think now we know there's a whole spectrum of things that people encounter where a mental health professional can really be helpful. So I think that uh, the earlier, the better. Right, and we're very fortunate there are resources out there for parents encouraging them to have these conversations earlier. Also from Instagram, this one from Supreme Plug G, does mental health affect your overall health? Well, man, I can't tell you. You just think about yourself in the morning when you wake up and all things are frazzled or when you're angry or when you seem a bit fuzzy about things. Uh, nothing physically can, uh, can counteract that. I think that mental health may be the most important element in most, certainly young people's lives, because physically they're generally uh, pretty healthy. Uh, And I think the problem has been, though, that uh, we let these things linger a bit too long. As we mentioned earlier, uh, when I was growing up, like I said, my father said when you um, had a mental health problem, you either drank or went to church. I think young people are more open to that now, and I think that uh, the sooner the better when you feel you're uh, things are slipping into darkness. Absolutely. And then on the subject of young people, this leads us into our next question. This one from Kai Sinai on Instagram. Who struggles more with mental health issues, the older or the younger generation? Man, I'm in the older generation, so I'd have to say that we struggle more with a, a lot of opportunities to better take care of ourselves simply because as we grew up so often, we were supposed to be self-sustaining. Especially we looked at mental issues mental health issues as a sign of weakness. And so consequently, instead of look seeking help, we often waited far too long when it was obvious, there were obvious mental issues. Uh, and so consequently, I would say young people are far more receptive to the uh, to aspects of all forms of physical and mental health than we were. Uh, it just wasn't a big thing uh, when I was growing up. Right. I would definitely agree. I think the younger generation uh, is more in tune with needing to take care of their mental health. You know, uh, self-care Sundays and things like that have become popular in general social culture. I would say to young people, if you see uh, your older relatives, your parents, uh, slipping into issues that you consider uh, have a mental orientation, it might be a good idea for you to try to help them to understand that help is available. Uh, so I think that young people have a real responsibility. It's especially important when you see a parent slipping into something like Alzheimer's or dementia to start to talk to them about that as a possibility and try to arrange the resources that they would need if, in fact, that turns out to be the case. I think it's very great advice, and I hope our younger listeners take that. I want to go back to something that you spoke about with Dr. Bailey, and I'll share a personal anecdote here regarding the concept of fear. Uh, recently, my wife and I were having a conversation. Uh, she was suggesting that we get tints on our front windows because of how hot it is here in California. 
and this is the vehicle that I primarily drive. And I said I would be open to the idea of getting tins as long as they were not past the legal limit, which, as we know, most people go past the legal limit because the tins aren't very effective at the legal limit. You know, we kind of had a bit of a debate back and forth about it. And I said, I won't go past the legal limit because I don't want to give a police officer a reason to pull me over as an African-American male. There's a fear there that informs a choice. Is there such thing as a healthy fear or is that anxiety? I don't think it's either. I think it's wisdom. I mean, look at what's happening across the country. Black men have pulled over for almost anything. And once they're pulled over, there's no telling where that goes. So I don't sense that that's fear or anxiety. That seems to me just wisdom. Absolutely. I think wisdom is a really great word for it. We have learned as people what works for us and how to put ourselves in the best situation to succeed when dealing with uh, law enforcement and, and other authority uh, institutions. And although those situations a lot of times can go south, we know what works for us and what we have to do. I want to pivot and go into something a little more introspective for you. Uh, one of our questions was, as a doctor, how does your job impact your mental health? Oh, I think, you know, many people think the doctors are immune to the same tensions that they have, especially in an epidemic pandemic like this that nobody's ever seen. I think it makes me anxious. It makes me nervous as a human being with uh, people I care about and people that I know. Uh, professionally, I think that we're just as busy as we were before, except we're not seeing patients in the office. Uh, and so uh, many times I go off the rail. I think everybody around me has seen it. But my wife, she has almost an instant way of stopping uh, and, and making me think that I need to kind of cut back a little bit and sit down and meditate and get myself together. She will look at me and say, you know, you really are crazy. And that stops me right in my tracks, uh, and I think it puts me back on a better course. Well, I cannot uh, stress enough the importance of meditation. Uh, it's something that you mentioned. It is something that I take very seriously and do at least once or twice a day. Uh, for our listener and listeners out there, there are plenty of apps and videos that you can find. Please try it. It is very, very useful and helpful. Uh, Dr. Lenore, before before we go, I want to ask you this question. Um, you know, I, I don't mean to date you here, but you were a young man during the time of civil rights. Is that correct? I was. You've been through and you've seen a lot in your time. What is your wish for the younger generation as they now face a racial divide that has become reminiscent of the civil rights movement as somebody who's been through it already? I would say as I've said to young people for many years, be vigilant. Uh, the things that we fought for and fought against in the 60s are still very much present here today, and I think we've seen evidence of that many times in the last year. So be vigilant. And as John Lewis so simply put it, say something. Stand up. Do something. Get in the way. I think he said it best, and I can say it no better. Right. Well, we'll wrap on that with the words of uh, Representative John Lewis, go out there and create good trouble. I think all of us are feeling the loss of John Lewis. And we could probably talk about him all day, but we're running out of time. I'd like to thank Dr. Ron Bailey for his insightful wisdom in his book, At Gunpoint. I think you should pick up a copy. Not only does he describe the problem, but he suggests some solutions. So remember, health is your biggest asset. 
so protected. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Lenore, and thank you so much to our listeners for listening to another episode. Black Doctors Speak is a weekly podcast sponsored by the African American Wellness Project, the Markel Lenore Endowment, and the Dan Weinstein Family Fund. Continue the conversations with us on social media, on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram at Black Doctors Speak, and on Twitter at Black Doc Speak. And if you enjoyed our show, please remember to subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, listening to our show is as simple as telling your Alexa, Siri, or Google to play the Black Doctor Speak podcast. Thank you, everyone. Take care of yourselves.